0: Hey, welcome back. It's The Urban Monk. It's been a while. Uh, Things got really busy around here. We had a movie, we had a book, we had a lot of things popping around here. I'm proud of what we've done this year. Movie's been doing great. I'm getting really good feedback on the book. And we just really didn't have much time to do the show, which makes me sad because uh, I miss doing this. I was able to sneak in one last interview uh, by the end of the year, which is what you're about to listen to, with my good friend, this is a repeat guest named Ari Witten. He just dug up six months worth of research on this thing called Adrenal Fatigue and has some very interesting things to say about it. Ari is a champion. I'm really impressed with the, the work that he does, the caliber of work and his dedication to just looking at the science Uh, and uh, you know, I think you're gonna really enjoy this. This will be the last podcast for 2017. I will be back in 2018 and kind of get the show back on the road, but this guy's gonna go hibernate and uh, take some quality time with my family and um, do the things that I, I, I practice what I preach a little bit and uh, catch my breath, and so uh, have a happy holiday season if you're getting this in the end of 2017. Enjoy the show and I'll see you in 2018. Okay, hey, welcome back. I am in studio with Ari Witten. I'm a big fan of his work. He's done some really pioneering work in energy and energy metabolism and helped a lot of uh, our students in our Urban Monk Academy. And he's become a good friend over the years and so I have a lot of respect for his work and I'm excited to talk about something very new that he's been digging up in the research that's going to shake up
1: a lot of things. Hey, welcome back. Thanks so much. It's a a pleasure to be here again with
0: you. Yeah, man, it's great. And so, like, you sent me, Kind of a meta-analysis <laughs> of yeah. all this research that you've been digging up for a while on adrenal fatigue, and your whole thing—you know—when you sent this to me, it was like this thing isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we've been talking about this for years in functional medicine, and uh, so I got into it uh, last night actually, and I was like scratching my head, and as I kept going, I'm like, oh my god, this is a whole this is like it's a house of cards.
1: Yeah. So That's that's uh, exactly the perfect description for it. I'm gonna steal that from you. It's all yours. (laughs) (laughs) It's all yours. Yeah, Yeah. so, you know, I think before we get into that, there's probably a lot of people watching this who are are skeptical and who, you know, would immediately jump to the conclusion that anyone questioning the idea of adrenal fatigue is a quack, it doesn't know the science, doesn't know what he's talking about. So I I think some context is important to kind of set for this discussion. So um, there's basically Two schools of thought on adrenal fatigue, diametrically opposed schools of thought. One is kind of the holistic, uh, integrative, um, alternative medicine and and functional medicine types of people, who, generally speaking, all kind of are proponents of this adrenal fatigue hypothesis, and you know are operating under this idea of adrenal fatigue. And for anyone who doesn't know what this is, just we're kind of assuming that we know that everyone knows, but let's just jump into that. Basically, it's the idea that chronic stress is, you know, chronic stress of various types is um, kind of overloading the stress system of the body and in particular, the adrenal glands, which produce a stress hormone called cortisol. And that over time, this chronic stress sort of wears out the adrenal glands to the point where they can't produce enough cortisol. And that by, by virtue of that, uh, low cortisol level, now you get the emergence of lots of different symptoms, chronic fatigue and um, hypoglycemia and, and maybe problem sleeping. And you know there's a whole bunch of symptoms that are claimed for it, sugar cravings, salt cravings, uh, things of that nature. But chronic fatigue is the, is the biggie in this whole discussion. So basically two schools of thought, all those kind of holistic naturalistic medicine types of people saying, yes, it's all about adrenal fatigue, let's test your cortisol levels, figure out if you have adrenal fatigue, and then let's treat your adrenal fatigue. Depending on what stage we find you in and- you Right, know. yeah, and there are various models that people have developed, um, largely based on Hans Selye's research from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, that have kind of classified this whole adrenal fatigue into you know three phases or five phases. I've even seen seven phases where they're saying, You know, here's the specific hormonal changes in cortisol and DHEA and and so on that occur in phase one, two, three, and so on. Um, So that's one camp, you know, adrenal fatigue proponents. Now, what many people watching this may not realize is that there's this whole other camp, which is all of conventional medicine, uh, who basically say adrenal fatigue is not a real thing. It's not a legitimate medical condition. There's no evidence in support of this. Uh, we do not accept this as a as a valid, legitimate condition. Um, so we're not going to diagnose anyone with it. We're not going to treat anyone for it because it doesn't exist, mm. right? So that's kind of the the big picture context. These two schools of thought. Now, where I came in, and and it's almost ironic that we're having this discussion because um, where I where I started with this whole thing of actually getting interested in exploring this research was. I was actually someone coming from the naturalistic camp who's been educated in the adrenal fatigue paradigm for 20 years.
0: Indoctrinated,
1: Joey. Indoctrinated. <laughs> and um, I fully believed in it. I've read books on it. I've read um, you know, hundreds of articles on it. I've seen lots of practitioners that I respect very much talking about this and claiming to diagnose people with it and treat people for it. Um, And I was teaching people about adrenal fatigue myself for many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I saw these kind of two schools of thought, and I saw specifically when I saw the the conventional medical doctors kind of brushing off the whole thing as nonsense and saying, you know, anybody who talks about adrenal fatigue is a quack who doesn't understand science. I, as someone coming from this naturalistic paradigm, was like, well, I actually understand science and, I'm gonna to go to the scientific literature and I'm gonna actually prove, I'm gonna write a book proving the scientific origins of adrenal fatigue. And um, and I'm gonna like go into the research as much as I can to actually make the scientific case that adrenal fatigue is a real legitimate medical condition. Um, and this was actually a, a few years ago that this happened uh, for the first time. and when i actually did it something remarkable happened um because i went to pubmed which is basically like google for for scientific studies and i typed in adrenal fatigue and basically there was nothing there um and i mean literally pretty much nothing now if if that's not hitting you know for people who kind of go to pubmed and do lots of research on there um, and look at lots of studies what i just said is pretty shocking, but maybe if people don't do that, they don't understand quite how shocking that is.
0: There should be hundreds of entries yeah. on everything, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, basically if you go to PubMed, you, anybody watching this can do this right now, um, look up any disease you can think of. Alzheimer's, um, you know, stroke, cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, you know, Sodrin's Syndrome, any, any obscure condition you can think of. Type it in and you'll see at least dozens, but probably more like hundreds or thousands of studies. Mm-hmm. Now you can do the same thing, type in adrenal fatigue, and basically nothing will come up. Actually, um, it's now worse than nothing because uh, as of 2016, there was a systematic literature review uh, that was published that's titled, Adrenal Fatigue Does Not Exist. Um, so, <laughs> wow. so there's actually negative scientific data, which is worse than having none at all. Um, but when I did this for the first time, there was basically nothing there. And-
0: Would you like suspect like some sort of uh,
1: conspiracy or something at that point? Like you're like, Wait, how can there be nothing here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable, right? I mean, it's yeah. remarkable to have thousands of articles online and, and dozens of books written about a medical condition where there is no research talking about this medical condition. Mm. I mean, there's, there's the, the enormity of that gap is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, uh, being a proponent of adrenal fatigue, uh, that didn't really make sense to me. So I kind of just let it sit there. Then I started to kind of have an idea to look up maybe like cortisol and chronic stress, cortisol and chronic fatigue, um, cortisol and burnout. And then I started to see some studies. So uh, it turns out that even though there's no research on adrenal fatigue per se, uh, there are actually three related fatigue syndromes, chronic fatigue syndromes, uh, that actually do have lots of evidence that we can look to. So um, there, the three syndromes are um, burnout syndrome vital exhaustion, or it's also called exhaustion disorder, and chronic fatigue syndrome. And these are uh, all accepted, legitimate medical conditions uh, by mainstream medicine, and they've been studied. So here's the cool part. Even though there's no research on adrenal fatigue, we can actually look at all this big body of evidence, all these dozens of studies that have been conducted on burnout, on exhaustion disorder, and on chronic fatigue syndrome, and their relationship to cortisol Mm -hmm. levels. Okay. Which is
0: what all the proponents of adrenal fatigue are pointing to in that whole, the whole understanding of this thing. Exactly.
1: So basically the question is, does cortisol, do cortisol levels have a meaningful relationship with chronic fatigue? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, first of all, is abnormal cortisol levels even found in the majority of people with chronic fatigue syndromes? Um, is it a reliable predictor of symptoms? Meaning the more severe the symptoms, the more severe the cortisol abnormality should be. Um, when people improve, does cortisol level, do cortisol levels change and get better? Um, if you directly do an intervention to raise cortisol levels in people with lowered cortisol levels, does it fix their chronic fatigue? Mm -hmm. You know, these are all basic predictions that would come out of the adrenal fatigue hypothesis, Mm -hmm. that we can now look to the evidence to see if those things are true.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So in other words, we can look to this huge body of evidence. Uh, It's actually over, it's about 80 studies, 60 individual studies, and 20 uh, systematic literature reviews and meta-analyses, which are kind of reviews of the the studies. that have been done for over 20 years now, since about 1995 till 2017. In these three lanes. Yes. Yeah, and um, one more point that I'll mention here is, there's a huge amount of overlap in the symptoms of these different fatigue syndromes that I just mentioned with the claimed symptoms of adrenal fatigue. I mean, if you look at burnout syndrome, the symptoms of that are essentially identical with what's claimed for adrenal fatigue. Um, Exhaustion disorder, really kind of, these are all just kind of like different words for a lot of the same symptoms. Chronic fatigue syndrome uh, is probably the most severe of the different the different um, fatigue syndromes. There was an interesting survey that was conducted by actually a, a, a website that's an adrenal fatigue website. Um, and he was doing it with the idea in mind to kind of prove the existence of adrenal fatigue. And basically what he did was he took CDC uh, data, Centers for Disease Control, data from, um, Uh, surveys that were conducted with people with chronic fatigue syndrome and they basically just took this group of people with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and said do you have this symptom do you have this symptom do you have this symptom you know across 15 different symptoms so uh, fatigue obviously um, brain fog do you have um, hypoglycemia do you have um, difficulty standing do you have sore lymph nodes or joint pain you know symptoms like that and so they they basically Gathered this data that said, you know, seventy-three percent have brain fog, and sixty-nine um, percent have this symptom, and and eighty-seven percent of this symptom, and on and on through all these symptoms. Now, what this guy at this adrenal fatigue website did was he basically polled his audience of people who were either diagnosed with adrenal fatigue or s- essentially self-diagnosed, suspected that they have adrenal fatigue, um, which is pretty common. Most people are kind of going online Mm. and saying, oh, you know, here's these symptoms of adrenal fatigue. That sounds Mm. like what I have. So Mm. there's a lot of that kind of self-diagnosis going on. So he polled this audience and basically just asked them the same questions. How many of you have this symptom? How many of you have this symptom? And and so on for the same symptoms. And um, I've actually charted the numbers so you can see it visually, but the percentages are almost identical. Mm. Meaning people who think they have adrenal fatigue Uh, will claim the exact same symptoms for the most part as people with chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, literally almost identical. Mm. So the point being that uh, these fatigue syndromes do have a lot of relevance to the concept of adrenal fatigue and uh, there's a huge amount of overlap Basically, what I'm saying is they're kind of different words for the same thing, for the most part.
0: And it sounds like there's a naming war, and at the end of the day, if you just let go of this one name, you could fall into any of these three categories if you have those symptoms.
1: Yeah, it it basically depends on who you talk to. So if you go to a conventional MD who, you know, who thinks in terms of burnout syndrome or thinks in terms of chronic fatigue syndrome, you'll come away with that diagnosis. Whereas if you went, you know, being the same individual with the same symptoms, if you went to uh, a, a naturopath or a chiropractor or a functional medicine doctor, uh, you're going to come away with an adrenal fatigue diagnosis. Mm. Mm. So anyway, a little digression there, but the basic point is we have over twenty years of research uh, into this question of does adrenal fatigue exist? Does cortisol levels do cortisol levels and, uh, HPA axis function, which is the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal system, the whole the brain regions and the adrenals together, um, Does dysfunction there and abnormal cortisol levels relate in any meaningful way to chronic fatigue? And basically, here's what the, the data says. So, um, and I'm gonna give you this in summary form because this, this is literally six months of work to, to analyze all of these studies and read through all the full text and put all the different pieces together and make sense of everything. So I'm gonna take six months of work on my end and I'm gonna summarize it into a few sentences. Um, basically, what it looks like is this. Uh, no differences between people with chronic fatigue syndrome versus normal healthy people. No differences between people with burnout syndrome versus normal healthy people. Cortisol low, levels, yeah, cortisol levels, exactly in cortisol levels. Uh, low cortisol levels in people with burnout or or in people with chronic fatigue syndrome versus normal healthy people. High cortisol levels in people with burnout or cortisol levels. No difference, no difference, no difference. High, low, you know, on and on and on like that for sixty studies um, from nineteen ninety five to two thousand seventeen, and some up, some down, most not, not there, but nothing, nothing substantiating the claim that cortisol has anything to do with it. Well, here's, so some of them claim to say, you know, oh, we found high cortisol levels in people with chronic fatigue syndrome. We found low cortisol levels on hmm. people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And to get even more specific here, it's usually that they find abnormalities in the morning peak of cortisol. Uh, shortly after awakening, uh, we see uh, a sharp increase in cortisol levels, uh, literally within the first hour after awakening, and then uh, it dips down over the rest mm. of the day. So usually they're looking at the morning cortisol awakening response to detect any kind of abnormality. So sometimes they're saying, oh, we found high cortisol levels are associated with chronic fatigue syndrome or burnout syndrome, um, and then the next study says low, and the next study says low, and the next one says no difference, and the next one says high. Mm. Um, and if, to, to actually give you that the real numbers, um, 16 of 62, uh, 16 of 60 studies showed uh, low morning cortisol levels or in the direction of lower morning cortisol levels uh, is associated with chronic fatigue or burnout. 12 studies showed that high morning cortisol levels are associated with chronic fatigue mm-hmm. or burnout. And 32 studies show that there are no detectable differences in cortisol levels between People with chronic fatigue versus normal, healthy people without any problem. Mm. Now, that's that's a remarkable <laughs> thing because, I mean, you can literally take people with severe, debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome. And, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody with chronic fatigue syndrome, but it they can be absolutely debilitated with a mm. severe condition. It sucks. Yeah. It sucks. They have no energy in life. Like, they just drag all yeah. the time it's miserable, mm-hmm. and despite that person's very severe medical condition, they may have perfectly normal cortisol levels mm-hmm. that are identical to what you and I have. So it ain't the cortisol. Basically. It ain't the cortisol. Now, after, all, after all this talk. After like, all this talk, after literally decades yeah, years, of Years, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's and, interesting.
1: Yeah, so my choice at this point, you know, coming from being an adrenal fatigue p- proponent, <laughs> was you know I could either, I could do one of two things. One is I could write a book about um, why adrenal fatigue is true and I could go in and I could cherry pick all of that data. So I could take specifically those 16 studies that showed that cortisol levels are low in people with chronic fatigue and Mm. I'll just leave out all the ones that said it was high or the 32, Mm. the majority of studies that found normal cortisol levels. And I could write a book that claims that, that cortisol is the cause of chronic fatigue, and I could make, for, for someone who's not versed in the science, who doesn't care to explore it for themselves, I would make what is apparently uh, a scientific-looking mm-hmm. case uh, for that. This is a very well-understood model. Mm-hmm.
0: Pharmaceuticals do it every single day. Right. Cherry-pick the data, yes. say what you want to say anyways. Yeah, not, and yeah.
1: not just um, pharmaceutical companies, but I would say most of our peers uh, mm. do it. Most, mm. most diet gurus out there uh, who are trying to, to promote one particular diet as the one true best diet, mm. they're cherry-picking the data, almost mm. guaranteed. Mm. Um, it is unfortunately all too common. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't do that. <laughs> uh, instead, I decided to basically say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to analyze all of this, sa- this science, and I'm just going to communicate to the world what it actually says. You know, and here's here's what it says. You know, this percentage say low, this percentage say high, and the majority say it's perfectly normal. Um, so, draw your own conclusion from mm-hmm. that. And basically, the the conclusion is this: um, all of those predictions that I shared with you before. So, for example, uh, the, the basic predictions that that we would expect to see if adrenal fatigue is real um, is cortisol. Are cortisol levels? abnormal in people with chronic fatigue? You know, it's a very simple idea. No, in the majority of people, they do not have abnormal cortisol levels. Mm. Uh, Does cortisol relate to severity of symptoms? No, you can have somebody with severe debilitating chronic fatigue who has either high, low, or perfectly normal cortisol levels. No meaningful relationship there. Does cortisol uh, improve uh, as you do an intervention that gets people well again? And there are 10 studies that have test that have actually done these kinds of longitudinal intervention studies. Um, three of 10 found a meaningful relationship where improvements of, in symptoms related to changes in cortisol levels, seven of 10 found that people improved and there were no changes in cortisol levels that, that corresponded with symptom improvement. Um, and then the, the last prediction is if you directly change cortisol levels, does that fix the fatigue? So this is a very simple way of testing the theory. Uh, if low cortisol levels are the fundamental cause of this, give people hydrocortisone,
0: mm-hmm.
1: raise their cortisol levels. It should, um, if low cortisol is the, the fundamental cause, it should cause dramatic improvements mm-hmm. and really fix people um, mm-hmm. pretty much instantly. Um, at the very least, it should cause significant benefit. in Or
0: symptom abatement, something. Yes. yes. Something, <laughs> something, something. Something. Yep.
1: Um, and there are three studies that have tested this. Mm. So um, a couple from 1998, and then the most recent one from 2003. Uh, and the, the couple from 1998 kind of showed possibly some improvements. They were short term and there were improvements in some things and not in other things. And it was only a small portion of people that noticed improvement. And then the placebo groups also saw big improvements. So hard to know. And then in 2003, uh, there was a six month crossover trial, which basically means that they took the same individuals. They had them go on the hydrocortisone for three months and then, on the placebo for three months or vice versa. Another group went on the placebo for the first three months and the hydrocortisone for the next three months. So it was the longest term trial, the best controlled trial, double blind, neither the researchers nor the, uh, nor the people knew who was getting what. Um, placebo controlled, obviously. And after six months of this study, they found no significant differences in fatigue or basically any symptoms Uh, in people on the treatment versus placebo. so uh, And that was in people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And this is why um, it's not common practice. It's not standard practice Mm -hmm. to give hydrocortisone to people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, Remarkably, they even found that in the subset of people who actually did have low cortisol levels, uh, the hydrocortisone still Hmm. wasn't beneficial to those people Hmm. Uh, it did not provide greater improvement to those people so no benefit uh, versus placebo and uh, basically what all of these what all of these all of this stuff means is that essentially all of the basic predictions uh, of the adrenal fatigue theory that we would expect to find when analyzing this body of research are not supported by the research
0: you looked at chronic fatigue. Did you also look at burnout syndrome and the other just to, just to make sure that there wasn't some sort of bogey out, out of those other two
1: lanes? No. So the research I, I just went over is on all, all of that. All three. Yeah, it's Got it. that's lumping all three of those Got together. It. Now. Um, If you go in, I mean, you could, I've also kind of pieced this apart where I've only, I've taken only the ones on chronic fatigue syndrome specifically, also only the ones on fibromyalgia, which I haven't mentioned because I'm trying not to confuse things too much here. Um, Burnout syndrome, uh, vital exhaustion or or exhaustion disorder. I mean, you can look at all of them individually. There was a systematic literature review on burnout syndrome specifically. They found, um, they analyzed 19 studies, And they said three were in the direction of a hyperactive HPA axis, meaning higher cortisol levels. Uh, Five were in the direction of lowered cortisol levels, um, lowered HPA axis function. And 11 did not show any difference between uh, people with burnout syndrome, versus normal, healthy, regular people without any problems. So the percentages, if you do the math on that, basically break down to almost identical percentages as what the overall body of evidence shows. So we,
0: see this kind of untangles and retangles a knot, yeah. right? So we've looked at cortisol almost as like the kind of high interest credit card of the body's energy system. It's like, well, you don't have it, swipe the card, borrow from you know, reserves, Get through the day, and you keep doing that long enough, you break the bank, and then you're in adrenal fatigue, and that's right. kind of the metaphor that's gone for years. Right. One that I've used, right? And so, one, you take that away, and you you get the energy, you know, the the, the energy function needs a, a new kind of look at it, and then also like the fat storage function, and how adrenal fatigue and weight loss are all you know there. It's like you you kind of scrambled your own eggs there. <laughs> And then you have to like look at it all again. So I'm really curious as to what, you know, at at what point, first of all, kudos for being a good scientist and being like, I'm not going to bullshit the data here. Yeah. Right. And then you started looking at it going, okay, damn. So now what's my mantra, right?
1: Like. Yeah. And, and well, what you're saying right now is actually the origins of why I started the Energy Blueprint, why I started my brand. It, It came out of this. It came out of what I saw is a huge disconnect between the actual science on you know, the subject of fatigue, our understanding of fatigue and how to fix fatigue, and what people are talking about. And um, it seemed to me apparent that people are, are making all of these claims and, and and claiming to do all of these things, uh, but it's, it doesn't match up with the science. And there just is a huge gap here. So I said, um, I want, to, I want to be the guy who builds out the science of our understanding of chronic fatigue, comprehensive science. What are the factors that are truly causing chronic fatigue and how can we overcome them? Um, and it's not just me doing this, I, I have been partnering with and, and communicating with and involving lots of world-renowned experts, uh, researchers. Physicians, um, nutrition experts, circadian rhythm experts, neuroscientists—all um, kinds of people—and and really bringing them into this to develop this comprehensive kind of blueprint of our understanding of the causes of fatigue. Mm-hmm. So, if it
0: ain't adrenal fatigue, and that theory is now, you know, fully like you know, in the in the light of being questioned, and arguably you've already kind of refuted it, right?
1: And well, yeah, but, I mean, just to go there for a sec, I yeah. mean there's there's over 20 years of research right. from dozens of researchers all over the world. Yep. How much more do we need? I mean, how much right. more do we need to beat this thing to death and develop even more contradictory studies right. that are, I mean, it's not it's not gonna bring any more clarity. Unless we have the next 10 years, all of a sudden there's some breakthrough in testing that we realize all the last 20 years we were testing it the wrong way and now we've figured out it's really mm-hmm. this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, we understand how to test for cortisol levels. Right. Right. So
0: the thesis there is now come under question. Yeah. And, and just to speak to that for a moment, like, you know, whether you're a functional medicine doctor or whatever, I mean, look, if you're in a clique, that's not science. So, it, you know, just drop the nomenclature and get with what's happening. Yeah. Right. And so, exactly. Yeah. So that's all just identity politics.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to, to dig a little deeper there, there actually are some problems there i mean there's a number of other problems we could go into with regards to adrenal fatigue um, just to name a few there's some problems with cortisol testing um, for example you know i talked about this steep morning peak and morning rise in cortisol levels um, well a lot of the testing that's done is based on that morning you know salivary test and some of the labs are not giving very specific instructions to test Mm -hmm. specifically within the first half an hour or hour of waking. waking. And if people test outside of that, um, if if you test even one and a half hours after waking or two hours too late, you're gonna show up with low cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. And then you're gonna be diagnosed with adrenal fatigue Mm -hmm. and be told that your your adrenals aren't functioning well. Mm -hmm. When in reality, uh, if you tested half an hour earlier or an hour earlier, Mm -hmm. you would have shown up with Mm -hmm. normal cortisol levels. So now the functional docs, uh, present company
0: included for a while, um, you know, there's certain kind of ashwagandha, whatever, you, you, know, there's a whole class of adaptogenic herbs that are supposed to help boost that. Right. And so you use these herbs to help supplement the adrenals to boost adrenal function.
1: Yeah, and, and this, is a, this is another um, kind of thing that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it, the math doesn't add up in adrenal fatigue. Because if you actually look at the science on these different adaptogens, and I I like a lot of these different adaptogenic substances, I think they're good substances um, that have lots of benefits, but uh, if you actually look at the science, those substances only lower cortisol levels. Mm. Um, I could not find any research Mm. other than on licorice specifically, showing that uh, it raises cortisol Mm -hmm. levels. All All the adaptogens, the ashwagandhas, the, the ginseng. Um, holy basil. The holy basil, um, You know, you, I mean there's lots of others, medicinal mushrooms and, and so on. Uh, commonly prescribed to people with adrenal fatigue who supposedly have low cortisol levels. Mm. And they're put on these herbs, with the idea that these herbs are kind of. Dual direct. T- yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're gonna do whatever your adrenals need, sort of thing. Mm. That's kind of the, the thinking behind it, but mm. the science doesn't actually show that. The science shows that they lower cortisol mm-hmm. levels. Um, so it, obviously, it doesn't make sense to take somebody who already has low cortisol levels and put them on substances mm-hmm. that are designed to further lower cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, There was one study that was done in people with burnout syndrome that put them on, that did a rhodiola rosea, which is another adaptogen. They did an intervention with that, and they showed that initially those people had high cortisol levels, and then after rhodiola rosea, they had lower cortisol levels, and this correlated with symptom improvement. Um, But that's the kind of thing, it just, there's so much contradictory research where you can Mm -hmm. find some other study that showed people had initially lower cortisol levels, Mm Uh, and then they were raised after an intervention. And as I mentioned before, the majority of those intervention studies show no change in cortisol levels that mm-hmm. parallels uh, symptom improvement. So, yeah, and, and there, there are a number of um, other problems with this. One other one that I, that I want to mention is, and this one will be fascinating for a lot of people listening, th- um, low cortisol levels or a low peak in morning cortisol levels is not evidence that the adrenals have been worn out. Okay, and here's here's why I say that. It turns out that there are actually a number of very common lifestyle factors and variables and traits um, that will induce a low morning peak in cortisol levels, literally from one day to the next. Uh, So just to name a few of these factors, being overweight. Mm. If you have excess body fat, The more body fat you carry, the lower your morning peak in cortisol levels will be. And there's research to back that up and everything I'm about to tell you. Um, There's also um, being a night owl, a night owl chronotype. That's kind of like whether you're a morning person or an evening person. Uh, There's a number of studies that have shown that people who are evening persons, night owls, have lower morning peaks in cortisol. So um, if you ask two people to measure their morning cortisol levels, Uh, I'm a morning person, you're a night person, and we both measure our cortisol levels at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, you're gonna show up with low cortisol levels, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna show up with normal cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. And the reason isn't because your adrenals have been fatigued, it's just because you're a night owl. Mm -hmm. And that's how your your hormonal systems are now wired to work. And that's how my body self-regulates. Yep. Um, Another factor is night eating. If people eat late at night, it will cause a lower morning peak in cortisol the next day. Uh, Another factor is napping will affect the next day's morning cortisol response. Mm. Uh, Another factor is many medications. Um, Numerous medications do this, but uh, antidepressants do it. There's research showing that you take uh, two groups of people with exhaustion disorder and one group is on antidepressants, one group isn't. Only the group that's on antidepressants will show up as having low cortisol levels. Mm. and then uh, an- another factor, probably the biggest factor in all this is just poor sleep. So poor sleep, and which is shockingly common, I mean actually overt sleep disorders, sleep apnea and things like that are incredibly common. Uh, some research estimates it to be about 50% of people with chronic fatigue syndrome hmm. um, have sleep apnea or some kind of sleep disorder. Um, if, you ha- if you sleep poorly, you will have lower morning cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's from one day to the next, meaning if, if you go to bed at 1 a.m. tonight, you're gonna wake up tomorrow with uh, low cortisol levels. If you correct it the next couple days and sleep well, you're gonna now have high cortisol levels. But, so if, it's, but if I
0: went to the doctor and took my test and had that snapshot, now I'm in a six-month protocol that
1: reflects that day, not necessarily my life. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's even research, and this is a funny one, there's even research that has looked at people people's cortisol levels on days where they either have work or they have a day off Mm. from work and on days off from work you have low morning cortisol and Mm. on days that you work you have normal cortisol Um, and the reason is basically it seems to rise with the expected demands on you Mm -hmm. so and and these are all factors by the way that um will induce low cortisol states that are exactly the same as those claimed, that some people claim to be associated with adrenal fatigue Mm. or burnout syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome uh, that are almost universally not controlled for in any of the studies trying to assess cortisol levels in chronic fatigue. And I have literally never heard any practitioner talk about any of these variables Mm -hmm. as confounding variables in their cortisol testing. Mm. Yeah, it's the the good ones are talking about it, but they still don't know what the hell to do about
0: it, right? It's just like, hey, make sure you do it first thing in the morning. Uh, there's just too many variables in it. There's there's just not enough known. Right. Okay, so if we can point to, or at least you know deduce from this this literature that you've pulled up that this has nothing to do with adrenal fatigue. Why do I care whether I have high or low morning cortisol?
1: Like, does, what does that affect outside of this this nomenclature? Yeah, basically what I think the research makes the case for is that all of the hype around cortisol is just unwarranted. Hmm. Um, Period, just, all of it. Uh, pretty much, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, let me put it this way. If I test your cortisol levels and I find that you have low cortisol levels and then I say, oh, great. I, I, I found you you have low cortisol levels. I'm going to raise your cortisol levels by, let's say, giving you hydrocortisone or giving you adrenal gland extracts that have mm-hmm. cortisol in them. Um, well, we already know that raising cortisol levels doesn't work better than a placebo. Right. So what good Why? was it that I identified that you had low cortisol? Um, we also know that people who have severe chronic fatigue may have high, low, or most likely perfectly normal cortisol levels. So why should we put so much focus and attention on measuring cortisol levels as if it's diagnostic of this condition? Mm -hmm. Let let me put it this way. Um, Let's say, just as a hypothetical example, we were trying to look for a biomarker of insulin resistance Mm -hmm. or type two diabetes and we said we're gonna look at fasting blood sugar, okay, which is actually the main thing that they look at. And let's just say instead of finding, instead of finding high fasting blood sugar in people with insulin resistance, let's just say for the sake of this point um, that we found low low fasting blood sugar in 25% of people, high fasting blood sugar in 25% of people, and normal fasting blood sugar in 50% of people. Mm what would immediately happen in that scenario? They, they would throw out this biomarker. They would mm-hmm. immediately recognize this is not a valid biomarker for mm-hmm. this condition. Yeah. And yet, this is exactly what we're doing when it comes to chronic fatigue. The, the whole world of, of holistic and naturalistic kind of health practitioners are saying, oh, we need to look at your, your cortisol levels. We need to get your cortisol levels because that's gonna diagnose your chronic fatigue. Mm. Well, we already know that it's not diagnostic of chronic fatigue. It doesn't effectively differentiate people with chronic fatigue from those without. And it doesn't effectively direct a course of beneficial treatment. So um, <laughs> the, the whole thing is is just We've, we went down this pathway from Hans Selye and then the whole adrenal fatigue thing when James Wilson coined the term in 1998. And we've been on this path of fixating on adrenal function and cortisol levels for over 20 years now, as if that's the thing. And the research just doesn't warrant it. So it's not the thing. It's not the thing.
0: Okay. So if we're talking about, okay, people with chronic fatigue have a real problem. People with burnout syndrome have a real problem. Yeah. They're exhausted. Yes. So if it has nothing to do with this cortisol thing, what do we look at now?
1: Yeah, and you mentioned a good point there that I, I just want to sure. emphasize really quick, which is that when I am saying that adrenal fatigue is not a real thing, I don't want anyone to hear that as me saying your symptoms are not real. Right. Okay, right. for people who, uh, sometimes I've encountered this, that sometimes people have been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue or have self-diagnosed themselves with adrenal fatigue or have had a test that said, oh, I had this cortisol abnormality and was told I'm in phase three of adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. When they hear the idea that someone is questioning adrenal fatigue, they go, oh, you're questioning whether my symptoms are real. right?" And I'm not, I, I'm, your symptoms are real. 100% the word needs to be changed. Your yes. diagnosis is off. Yeah, and yep. uh, what I'm saying is yep. it's not actually caused by your adrenal function or your cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. Your symptoms are real, mm-hmm. but let's yep. fixate, let's focus our attention on um, what actually is much more likely the, the, the causal factors here. Well, also there's this other kind of underlying thing.
0: It's like not only are your symptoms real, um, you should be relieved that you now know that what you have been doing um, hasn't been working yes. uh, and there's hope because you know maybe there's a different way to go about this, yeah, right? absolutely. It's like you're, you've been going down this road and you're lost in the woods and it hasn't been working for you and you're upset that it hasn't
1: been working but your symptoms are real, let's just look at it a different way. Exactly, and, yep. and just to emphasize that a bit more, why this matters like some people might be saying well why does it matter whether you're calling it adrenal fatigue or or something else at the bottom line is you know i'm I'm gonna do things that are gonna help me Mm -hmm. right well it does Mm -hmm. matter and here's why (laughs) Um, let's say you show up with having low cortisol levels Um, which by the way might simply be because you're carrying excess body fat or you're a poor sleeper or a night owl or something like that. Or
0: you took the day off to not go to work (laughs) and come into the doctor's office. Exactly.
1: Um, So let's say that you now have tested as having low cortisol levels. And now you're seeing a practitioner that says uh, this low cortisol levels indicates that you're in phase three of adrenal fatigue. Um, Let's get you on...
0: Hydrocortisone. Stuff.
1: <laughs> Let's get you on hydrocortisone, which is still being implemented, um, or adrenal gland extracts, or whatever. Uh, we need to raise your cortisol levels. Well, I've already showed you that, that the research actually doesn't support the idea that raising cortisol levels is any better than placebo, but there's actually one more thing that's even worse than that, uh, which is that it may have side effects. Um, hydrocortisone or raising cortisol levels to a level that's higher than what the body wants them to be at uh, is not without problems. Mm-hmm. And many people who do that uh, report massive weight gain um, and, and all kinds of different mm-hmm. symptoms that, that emerge from, from hydrocortisone. It's not so. good for
0: the brain. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of fallout from that.
1: Yes. So, so yes, it does matter mm-hmm. what, you know, whether the diagnosis that you've received and the treatment that you're getting are backed by science or not.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so we can, let's, let's put this one to rest
0: and say, look, it ain't the cortisol. Yeah. And so those treatments are not necessarily working. They might be deleterious. I mean, they're, they're definitely not helping. So now, what have you seen in your experience that is helping and where where would you take people who are fatigued and what would you look at?
1: Yeah, so what I think is going to be the, the new paradigm as far as our understanding of chronic fatigue. I think that over the next five years, 10 years maybe, hopefully it doesn't take that long, but um, I think we're going to shift out of this focus on the adrenals and cortisol and the HPA axis, and I think that we are going to shift our attention towards mitochondria. Uh, There is an emerging body of evidence over the last five, ten years that has really shown strong evidence that mitochondrial dysfunction is at the root of chronic fatigue. Um,
0: Tell our audience, just in case they don't know what mitochondria are.
1: Yes. So mitochondria are our cellular energy generators. These are the, the little batteries in our cells or little engines in our cells whose job is to basically take in fuel, mainly in the form of carbs and fats, uh, and pump out energy in the form of something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And uh, and this is really the way that that most people have conceptualized mitochondria. They're just kind of these little engines in our cells, the mindless kind of energy generators, they they pull in fats and carbs and they pump out energy. And that's what mitochondria do. Keep working. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, it it turns out that um, there's a whole body of evidence now, especially from a guy named Robert Navio, who is uh, an MD, PhD at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, medical school and he runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine there and he's done some absolutely pioneering breakthrough research uh, in our understanding of mitochondria and our understanding of chronic fatigue specifically Um, and basically what he's shown is that mitochondria are not just these mindless energy generators that pull in carbs and fats and pump out atp they have a second role that most people, even, I would say, even a lot of mitochondria experts out there who've written books on the subject are not even aware of. Um, I mean, this is breakthrough stuff. And basically the second role is that mitochondria have a critical role in cellular defense. And it turns out that they're kind of like the canaries in the coal mine. Their, their job is to detect when there is some kind of danger or threat present, and then once they determine if there's some kind of danger or threat present, they will either direct, direct their resources and attention towards energy production or towards cellular defense. And these are two sides of the same coin. So they're either doing more of one or the other. Hmm. Uh, so basically the idea is that the more that these mitochondria are sensing some kind of threat or danger, the more they shift out of energy mode into defense mode. Hmm. Wartime economy, peacetime economy. Exactly. So, hmm. uh, and, and specifically, the, there was research done by Robert Naviot where he looked at, uh, he did a, a metabolomics study of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And basically what this is, is it's a, a super ultra comprehensive blood test. Okay, so if a normal blood test might test uh, for 30 or 40 uh, different metabolites in the blood, this type of, of blood test tests for over 600 different metabolites in the blood. Uh, and the basic idea behind this kind of metabolomics uh, research is that if you, it's basically to develop like a, a signature, a metabolic signature or fingerprint for every different condition so uh, you take this data for people with chronic fatigue syndrome or people with diabetes or people with cardiovascular disease whatever you plug it into uh you know an artificial intelligence device a computer basically that's programmed to analyze this kind of data and it will say oh it has this unique pattern of these markers are high these are low these are high these are normal you know and so on and every different condition will have its own kind of fingerprint Hmm. um and, and that's kind of the idea behind it. Now, what they found in people with chronic fatigue syndrome is that o- over 80% of these metabolites were down-regulated, meaning mo- the vast majority of metabolites in these people's systems were lower than they should have been.
0: 600 or so metabolites, over 80% in chronic fatigue syndrome patients
1: down-regulated. Yep. So, these changes are, are not subtle. I mean, there is a massive system-wide yeah. slowdown of all the body's processes. Quick side note, and I just have to throw this in, but I, I just find it fascinating. That study actually found normal cortisol levels in people <laughs> with chronic fatigue syndrome. <laughs> Take that. So, so, you know, among finding, like, f- whatever 300 things that are abnormal, cortisol levels, of all things, are normal.
0: <laughs> huh. Which, yet again, points to the fact that it's not an indicator for anything. Right. Yeah.
1: So, um, <laughs> it's funny. basically, so th- this is one kind of level of, of evidence in our understanding here. Now, what these researchers concluded is that this kind of pattern of all of these kind of metabolites all of these different energy systems of the body are being downregulated. it's essentially like a, a type of hibernation mode okay and they use the word in the research dour, which is a, a kind of like a hibernation like state of uh, certain kinds of worms actually um, but there's a number of different animal models that have been studied that go into very similar metabolic states Uh, when they are exposed to a stressful environment. Okay, they go into, they shift their metabolism, their metabolic machinery into this kind of hibernation like mode where everything kind of slows down. Stressful environment being
0: chemical toxicity, being internal dynamics, like any kind of stress? Could be basically
1: anything. Okay, I mean if you take lab rats and and you subject them to psychological stress or you subject them to extreme cold uh, or shock them or, or anything like that, probably you know going to going to develop some kind of reaction like that. Yeah. Well, in you know dower is that specific term right. for these worms, but basically many different animal models kind of go into this hibernation like state in the presence of a toxic or stressful environment. Mm. And it's important to understand, this is not a mistake. This is actually the body's protective response in that situation, okay? And it turns out that a number of these different animal models may live 50%, 100%, 200%, 400% longer by shifting their metabolic machinery into hibernation mode in that toxic or stressful environment as compared to if they just function in their normal, highly energetic state. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in other words, what I'm saying to tie this together with the the mitochondria bit is the mitochondria are switching out of energy mode into defense mode. The body's turning off energy production, which on a big picture level, we know as the symptom of chronic fatigue, Mm -hmm. okay?
0: Brain fog, uh, even depression, all kinds of things.
1: I mean, look, yes. low energy
0: is not what you want. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, it, it will, basically, every system of your body, whether your brain, your heart, your liver, um, your intestines, everything in your body requires ATP, requires energy from the mitochondria to function, to do whatever it's designed to do. The brain to think and to direct lots of you know body movements and our heartbeat and our... our lung breathing and and so on, Um, our muscles moving and our liver detoxifying, all of these things are dependent on the mitochondria producing enough energy for those cells and organ systems to do whatever they're designed to do. So as soon as mitochondria are not functioning well and are not producing enough energy, those systems, those organs, now decline in their function. The brain doesn't perform as well the liver doesn't perform as well, the intestines don't perform as well, the heart doesn't perform as well, the muscles don't perform as well, and so on. So yeah, there's massive side effects uh, that massively deteriorate quality of life when your mitochondria are not functioning Mm -hmm. well. So this shift from mitochondria going out of energy mode into defense mode, system-wide causes this uh, kind of hibernation-like metabolic state and the symptom of chronic fatigue. And it's important to understand, just to connect the dots here, that this is the, the fatigue is not a mistake. It's part of the body's protective response in response to a toxic or stressful environment.
0: You'd mentioned a study on animal models for longevity mm-hmm. using this response.
1: Yes. Um,
0: So, which one are you referring to, the dower? The the actual, no, so so this is offline before we got started. Right. uh, These animals that go into this shutdown hibernation mode will actually live longer because they're throttling at a lower rate and not burning themselves. Yeah,
1: exactly, and basically a number of different animal models suggested that when they go into that protective hibernation mode type of state, uh, it allows them to live longer. It is actually a beneficial uh, beneficial response in the grand scheme of things mm. as far as survival is mm-hmm. concerned. And survival this, of the organism into you know future years, not necessarily quality of life. Exactly, yep. and this, this is an important distinction because um, as someone who's dealing with chronic fatigue, you may go, how could this possibly be beneficial to me? Mm. It's obviously a terrible mm. thing and it's deteriorating my quality of life massively. Mm. Um, how could it possibly be for my own good? Mm. Well, it's, you know, it's a a tricky thing, but basically the idea is that um, in the presence of that toxic or harsh environment, the body goes into this hibernation mode with the hopes that it will extend your lifespan long enough uh, to the point where it will no longer be in a toxic or harsh environment, and then it can- Turn the lights back on. Exactly. Yeah. So it is a survival, it's an ancient survival instinct that's kicked
0: in, but the damn thing won't shut off because we're getting smothered by chemicals and poisons and additives
1: and stress that just are relentlessly barraging us. Yes. And, and yeah. that's a really important point, actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, another piece of research that this guy, Robert Navio has developed is something called the cell danger response. And this is in my opinion probably the single greatest piece of research that has emerged in the last 50 years of of medical science Um, i think it's that important and i know a lot of other uh, functional medicine practitioner friends of mine also uh, consider it to be that important quick side note he just got uh, his funding for the next round of big studies that he's going to do and uh, i actually had the pleasure of meeting with him at his lab and and at ucsd a few months ago and got to talk to him and I um, kind of had like a few hour little personal one-on-one wow. teaching session which, with him, which was pretty cool. Imagine like a, a young physicist sitting down with Albert Einstein. It was kind of like that type of, of thing. Um, and uh, he told me kind of the next piece of research that he's going to kind of unveil to the world. And it's, yeah, I, I think it's, in my opinion, the biggest breakthrough probably in the last 50 years. Um, but basically, this cell danger response is exactly what I was describing before, where the mitochondria are sensing a threat and then turning off energy mode, shifting into danger mode, Mm -hmm. defense mode. And they actually initiate a whole cascade of of different events at the cellular level, uh, which then translate into the whole systemic level. Um, And just to take a practical example of this, let's say uh, you have a virus and the virus is in your cell And one of the things viruses can do, and certain bacteria can do as well, is they can kind of hijack the mitochondria and the energy produced by the mitochondria for their own purposes, to fuel their own replication. So if you think about it, it actually makes a huge amount of sense that the mitochondria would be designed to detect when that's happening and then to turn off. Mm. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? And then ring an alarm. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's exactly what they do next. Mm. So the first thing is they turn off their own energy production and then it starts to initiate a cascade of different events in the cell that are designed to um, increase oxidative uh, free radical production, which um, you know we generally associate with uh, as being this bad thing, but our cells actually use them for cell defense. So for example, to kill off invading mig- microbes, um, and then, you know, beyond that, they tend to stiffen the cell membranes of the cell to kind of seal things off and not allow things to travel in and out as well. So, uh, in other words, trying to limit the spread of that microorganism from one cell to the next. Lock it down, get, get the cops out on the streets. Exactly. And then uh, if enough damage occurs in that cell, uh, if it will actually self-destruct, essentially. It will... Uh, produce enzymes that, that trigger something called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. And uh, it's done in a way where the cell basically goes, hey, we've, we've taken on too much damage, you know, let's, let's blow up the plane and eject, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so when that happens, there is, there's now a, an interesting kind of chemical messenger event that happens. ATP, which is what I said is the cellular energy that is produced by mitochondria that fuels all of the cells in our body, um, that is normally supposed to stay localized inside of the cell. Now, when this happens, when there's, when you start to get cell death occurring and damage occurring, um, ATP starts to leak out of the cell and it starts to get into the bloodstream. Where it shouldn't be. You shouldn't have lots of ATP floating around your bloodstream. So then it turns out that ATP will act as a chemical signaling molecule. Other cells in our body actually have receptors on them that are designed to detect if ATP is present in the bloodstream. It's called something called purinergic signaling. And when that, when that's happening, when the cells are detecting ATP is floating around in the bloodstream where it shouldn't be, uh, that is basically the cue for all of the systems of the body, the brain and you know, every, everything else in the body to go, we're in lockdown mode, we're in danger mode, um, there's threat present, so let's turn off energy production and shift our resources into defense mode. Interesting, so
0: once uh, one of these ships basically hails May Day and the ATP starts leaking out, that is the chemical messenger to all the others as an alarm call, yep. saying shut down, we've been compromised, hibernate, um, don't produce as much energy, and let's go into healing mode until we figure out what's happening. Exactly. Right? But is it even
1: healing mode, or is it just hibernation mode? Like, Well, it's, it's both. Um, And and that's a great question because here's how this plays out, Um, and let me let me make this more practical for people Mm -hmm. listening because it's kind of like an abstract idea, kind of this theory. Um, When when the last think of the last time you got sick, you got a cold or a flu, something like that. What was one of the big symptoms or of having that? Yeah, fatigue. Yeah, yeah. So that fatigue that you feel when you have an infection. Mm. is the cell danger response, and is mitochondrial shutdown in action?
0: Hmm.
1: That's, I mean, you're literally feeling mm. exactly what I'm describing. This, is, this, is, this doesn't need to be just this abstract theory. You're actually, you've, you've felt this before. Mm-hmm. Now, this cell danger response creates, uh, choreographs this whole cascade of events that are designed to shift energy towards cell defense and get rid of the threat, mm-hmm. and help the body then recover. Mm -hmm. Um, which it does you know the vast majority of the time you get a cold or a flu or whatever Um, you feel fatigued for a period of time your body fights it off you get your energy back and recover switch turns back to energy energy production exactly now the key is that when the stress overwhelms the system or is present too long when it's just way too much for way too long the body can get locked into this cell danger response mode. It gets stuck there. Mm -hmm. And it is essentially forgotten how to heal itself. So at that point, the key is, the question is, how can we help the body relearn how to heal and how to turn the switch back on? And that involves a number of different things. There's a lot of different things that can cause mitochondrial shutdown. Um, Toxin exposure from, heavy metals or or pesticides. Uh, Our world is unfortunately filled with way too many toxins these days. Um, We also have things like leaky gut, gut permeability. There's research showing that that's linked to chronic fatigue syndrome from a toxin from certain bacteria in the gut called, uh, well, uh, the toxin is called lipopolysaccharide or LPS, basically uh, crossing the intestinal barrier into the blood. And so now you have this very potent toxin leaking into your bloodstream all the time Uh, causing chronic inflammation and immune changes, and so on, um, and mitochondrial shutdown. Uh, Then you have circadian rhythm disruption and poor sleep and psychological stress. Um, Then you have nutritional deficiencies and toxicities. Then you have uh, lack of hormetic stress. Uh, We talked about hormesis in our last podcast together, so some, some people might remember some of that. I won't go into all the details there, but basically, Um, lack of metabolic stressors that keep our mitochondria strong and healthy. Um, Exercise being one example, cold, heat, things like that. Um, The lack of those metabolic stressors in our life basically causes our mitochondria to shrink and shrivel and become weak, which uh, basically lowers what I call your resiliency threshold which means the amount of stress that your body can handle and recover from. Mm -hmm. Before you get into what's called traumatic stress where it just overwhelms the system, the body can't cope with it, it can't recover from it. And you cross over. Yeah, so um, it's basically a combination of a lot of different stressors in the environment uh, combined with weak mitochondria that are now very susceptible to this damage because they have such a low resilience threshold. So that kind of creates the perfect storm that uh, keeps the body locked into cell danger response mode and uh, prevents the body from from recovering and healing itself and getting out of that state.
0: There's something here that I just want to kind of lean into for a second (laughs) because… There, it's so multifactorial, and um, we live in an industry, you know. And I've been very vocal about this, uh, with the, especially the health industry, where it's like, no, listen, I got the like the Dr. Pedram one-stop shop. Do this one thing, it's gonna fix everything, baby, right? right? And everyone wants their like one stupid solution. It's the gluten, th- it's the it's insulin this. and
1: the carbs, it's whatever. Yeah,
0: stay yeah. in your lane, buy my stuff, and and <laughs> you know. And what what I'm hearing here is that you know, it's like you got to clean up your house, you got to clean up your gut, you got to you know move your body. You have to have that. Resilience, you know, and all yeah. the all of these things together are the way out, right? Yeah. And there's no simple way out.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's an important point because um, I'm actually deeply aware of what you just described. That from a marketing and sales perspective, mm-hmm. and building a business and making money, I would actually be way better off saying it's this one thing. Here's here's my Ari method. Yeah, yeah, and all you have to do is this one thing, and it's just this. It's that simple. Right. Um, that message is way sexier than the message that I have for people, right. which is, it is multifactorial. There's all these different potential factors and combinations of different factors and different people with the same condition, let's say chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, might have different combinations of some of these factors. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's all this one and for someone else, it's it's all these two over here mm-hmm. and this person doesn't have any of these two, hmm. right? So. But they, where, what I'm saying is they all coalesce in causing the same basic type of mm. dysfunction in the body at the mitochondrial level. Mm. And so that's where things come together. But as far as, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I wish that it was as simple as selling people on the idea, hey, just do this one thing, it's just really? about nutrition, just follow my special diet where you eliminate these three bad foods mm. and now all your problems are solved. Bada boom, bada bang. yeah,
0: yeah. I yeah. wish it was. <laughs> well, if, I mean, we wouldn't be talking about it twenty some odd years into yeah. you know all this stuff. Is it's it's complicated, yeah. and you know I think the marketing industry is trying to sell sugar cereal to children, right? It's yeah. like everyone's looking for a, a, a quick fix, yeah. And that's not how we got into this mess. Yeah. So let's just be adults about it
1: and find the right way out. Yeah, yeah. And and my approach, my approach is the truthfully is is a shotgun approach. It's mm-hmm. basically. Um, I this is this is the way that I operate. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people think about solving a problem in their life. Where they go, um, how can I fix this problem while doing the least amount of work possible?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I want to just kind of, I want like the simplest thing. I want to just pop a pill every day and have this thing go away. My thinking has always been, you know, since I was very young, it's like if if I want to achieve this goal tell me everything that I could possibly do that may even help a little bit mm. to to achieve that goal. And I want to do all of it, you know? And that's that's where my approach, mm. that's what my approach is all about. It's mm. do as many things as possible to bolster mitochondrial health mm-hmm. and, and system-wide health of every system of your body. Because mm-hmm. basically this is a game of the body has, has, has gotten stuck in this danger state, okay? And so if you think about it in terms of this cup, the, if my you know, resilience threshold is up here, let's say, you know, at this level, and the cup fills up with stress, 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 and then it surpasses this resilience threshold, and then it starts just overflowing, the cup's overflowing all the time. Well, this is cumulative stress load from all the different types mm. of stressors. So I don't want to just go, you know. Oh, it's yeah. heavy heavy metals. Right. You know, heavy metals. That person may have heavy metals, but that may be just twenty percent mm-hmm. of this overall stress load. So yeah, remove those. But also do lots of mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. Do as many things as possible to get your overall stress load as far below your actual resilience threshold as possible so that your body can go, can, can realize, wow, I'm no longer in a toxic, dangerous mm. environment. I can heal, I can allow myself to turn back on the, meta- the beta- metabolic machinery, mm. turn back on the mitochondria, and function normally. Mm. So as many things as possible that we can lower the stress load to allow all of the systems of the body to switch back on. And I wanna create as many feedbacks feedback loops as possible. I want to bolster liver health. I want to bolster brain health. I want to bolster heart health. I want to bolster mitochondrial health. I want Mm -hmm. to do all of those things, circadian rhythm, sleep, psychological stress, as many of those as possible because the more things you have working in your favor, the faster you're gonna recover. Right. Well, and it's
0: also, you're also talking about hormetic stressors, so what you also wanna do is raise that threshold while
1: lowering the load yeah. so that you're working in both directions at the same time. Exactly, and yeah. anytime you talk about hormesis, you've won my heart, because that's my favorite subject. Um, now, one of the cool things that I'll tell you is, Robert Naviot is a very interesting research. He's a researcher. He's one of very few people that I've ever spoken to health experts who actually knows what hormesis is, Mm. which is, it's this remarkable thing. It's kind of another area where we have this huge gap between there's so much science saying this thing is so important and yet most people have no idea about it. Um, But hormesis again is this idea of metabolic stressors, exercise, cold, heat, intermittent fasting, uh, different kinds of phytonutrients, um, hypoxia like breath holding exercises, Um, lots and lots of different metabolic stressors like that work to stimulate and build our mitochondria, much like lifting weights build a muscle, Mm -hmm. okay? And the the opposite is also true. So when you don't have these metabolic stressors built into your life, and most people do not, then your mitochondria shrink and shrivel and atrophy in the same way that a muscle atrophies when it's put in a cast and not being used. Mm -hmm. So that... Concept is critical, and um, in, in my opinion, it's one of the single most important concepts when it comes to overall health and energy. I think it's all about hormesis, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's an important distinction because most people are all about oh let's let's get rid of stress, let's you know have you rest and 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 sleep and and, and not have any stress load, and put you on this supplement and that supplement and um, there's there's a big missing key there which is you need exposure to small doses of metabolic stressors and the cool thing is robert navio has actually said that hormesis is part of what helps the body relearn how to heal itself hmm. it actually if you think about it it resets it almost yes it's basically it's create so it, this is very counterintuitive because you're like you're taking someone who's already overwhelmed with stress and already has way too much um, uh, oxidative stress and nitrosative stress uh, in their cells just way too much damage that's occurring uh, and then you add a metabolic stressor which creates even more mm. um but so that's that's why i say it's very very counterintuitive but here's the key is that it has to be a very small dose very acute, very short-lived, small dose, create that little bit of stimulation, and then by stimulating the cells in that way, you you stimulate an adaptive response to that stressor. A genetic adaptive response. Yeah, there, it involves expression of many different genes, but it's mainly at the mitochondrial level. Mm. And what's involved with, with that is basically things like exercise and all the other hormetic stressors um, create a a little burst of free radicals they create a little burst of damaging chemicals essentially and in response to that the mitochondria go hey we we better ramp up our defenses and so the mitochondria build up their internal antioxidant defense system anti-inflammatory defense system that protects the cell against damage and protects Mm. the mitochondria against damage Mm. Um, so When that happens, that little stimulus of a temporary stress stimulates the body in that way. And that's part of how you have to teach people's cells how to heal again. Cells that have forgotten how to heal themselves and gotten stuck in cell danger response mode. So it's almost like shock therapy
0: for your cells to be like, hey, come back. Exactly. Come back. So there's, okay, this part of this kind of goes to me, it kind of takes my mind to like reparenting therapy, which is, you know, I've lied and cheated and fooled my body so many times into like, you know, getting healthy and then just, you know, eating a Twinkie or, you know, doing something toxic to the point where it's like, I don't trust you anymore. So even if you start doing the right stuff, there might be like a lag where your body's just like, I don't trust you, like you, yes. you keep putting me in toxic environments, like we live in Los Angeles, like it's dirty, right? Exactly. And so at a certain point, like you gotta clean house and do all this at the same time. So how much have you seen like, just cleanses and detoxes help initiate this process? I mean, obviously it's part of a kind of gestalt, right? Yeah. But it seems like an obvious place to, to start.
1: You know, there are a couple things that I wouldn't start with in people with chronic fatigue syndrome. One is actually exercise, even though I just got finished talking about the benefits of of hormesis. People in severe debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome can't handle exercise. They Mm -hmm. need gentler forms of hormesis first. Detox is actually another one. I, I think before you start really doing any kind of active, aggressive detoxing, Uh, you have to build up some of the systems of the body. You have to do some mitochondrial building. You have to um, build up the the cell's antioxidant defense systems. You have to fix circadian rhythm and sleep. Um, You have to make all of the systems a little bit more resilient and healthy before you start dumping chemicals into the system aggressively. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, in order to detox, we have to, to dump a lot of these things back into the bloodstream. And, uh, and then get rid of them. The system can handle it. Yeah, in, in, in a chronic, chronically fatigued person, aggressive detox can be problematic mm-hmm. the same way that aggressive exercise mm-hmm. can be problematic and can be counterproductive. So it's, it's really important to do this in a very progressive, systematic, kind of stepwise approach mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. gentler stuff at the beginning to um, to kind of facilitate healing. To be more specific, I, I really focus on circadian rhythm and sleep as the first foundational step um, for a number of reasons. Uh, our bodies regenerate while we sleep. This is really when they have time to regenerate. So, it's when they're supposed to hibernate. Yeah. yeah. So give it the the ability to spend more time in regeneration mode and more importantly to, to, to get deep into regeneration mode, to get deep into deep sleep. Mm. And that involves resetting the circadian rhythm, the 24 hour circadian clock in the brain. Uh, and there are many things that affect that light timing, um, meal timing, movement timing, even temperature will affect it. Uh, so we want to get, we want to optimize our circadian rhythm, that 24 hour clock, And that affects all of the different metabolic systems. It has cascading effects on all the different metabolic systems of the body. The organs, uh, neurotransmitters in the brain, hormones, I mean it affects everything. And it also sets you up for deep regenerative sleep. Then there's a whole set of of sleep habits that will further enhance sleep. Um, Now there's a couple things that happen during sleep that, that are really important. One is something called autophagy, which is uh, basically, if you break the word down, it means auto, which is self, and phagy, which is to consume. Uh, And basically, this is the process that our cells go through every night where they break down damaged and dysfunctional cell parts, and they kind of chemically digest them, and then they recycle them and use them to rebuild new healthy cell parts. Well, if you don't have deep restful sleep and you're not effectively in a, a fasting state because your feeding windows are too long, um, the, the time from your too first- long or too short? To, your feeding windows are too long, so the time from your first bite of food to your last bite of food and your fasting window oh, is I'm too sure. short. Got it. Um, so if that's occurring, then the body won't go into this process as effectively and regenerate at the cellular level through autophagy. Uh, and that's a huge problem for many. The, the research shows that overall people have way too long of fast uh, feeding windows and too short of fasting windows. In fact, there's research that actually shows that um, for most Americans, the time they spend fasting is usually only the time that they're actually in bed. Um, I mean, literally from, we're talking, let's say, 11 p.m. or 10.30 p.m. to- you Six know, or
0: seven. To seven. Yep. you know
1: and and that's the only time they're spending in a fasting state whereas you really want to bump that up if you want to maximize autophagy to um, around 12 14 hours um, so da- people daily or do you kind of cycle that daily and daily. It, what I'm suggesting is not so extreme you know I'm suggesting let's say a 12-hour feeding window you get to eat from eight in the morning to eight at night or seven mm-hmm. to seven. You know, it's that, mm-hmm. not exactly extreme. You know, right. it's not like fasting where I'm suggesting something that's oh wow that's that's intense. You know, right? Um, it's a simple it's change, kind of normal. Yeah, yeah. It should be kind of normal. Unfortunately, it's not because most people have feeding windows that are 15, 16 hours long instead of 10 to 12. Mm. Um, so the ideal length of a fasting window, what 14 hours? At least 12. At least 12 to 14 is. Yeah. So 12 to 14 is kind of the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, And it could be potentially longer than 14 as well. Uh, Just you run into other potential issues with too much fasting in that case. And it can be a little too much of a metabolic stressor for people with chronic fatigue, but we digress. So um, basically maximize autophagy, cellular regeneration at, at, at night, so that you're not functioning today on yesterday's and last week's cell parts. You know, we wanna be functioning on new healthy cell parts. Mm-hmm. Every night, this needs to happen effectively. And if it's not happening, as it's not in the majority of people, uh, if it's not happening well, then uh, we accumulate little bits of damaged cell parts, damaged cell parts over years and decades. And that, of course, results in fatigue and damaged mitochondria and yes. many, uh, eventually many different kinds of diseases. Um, and the process of autophagy is you know, very important as far as preventing cancer as well. Um, another factor is just melatonin. Um, when we have artificial light at night and we have weak circadian rhythms and, uh, and we don't protect our circadian rhythm, we don't have as strong of a, met- a melatonin surge, it's chronically suppressed. And that's problematic because this hormone, melatonin, doesn't just trigger sleep, it also has an integral role in protecting our mitochondria from damage. Mm -hmm. Um, So it stabilizes mitochondrial membranes and protects them from incurring this kind of damage that will set off the cell danger response and initiate fatigue. So um, anyway, that's where I start, circadian rhythm and sleep. Allow the cells to start regenerating effectively, protect the mitochondrial membranes and spend lots of time in regeneration mode. Then you start going into nutrition, uh, healing the gut, then I go into detoxification, then I go into neuroscience and combating uh, psychological and emotional stress and anxiety, uh, and then hormesis, my favorite subject. So, so
0: that's at the top. Like yeah. you, gotta, you gotta climb your way up the mountain for that. Yes. You know it's funny is when people come into like a kung fu studio, the that's transla- hormesis is something I grew up with, I just didn't know the word, because Kung Fu, the literal translation, is eat bitter, or, uh-huh. or hard work, which is when you be- develop resilience in, in your training, then your resilience is, in life is stronger, yeah. right? So that's the, but some people will come in, they're really weak, so you start them in Qigong, and you start them just doing kind of basic mind-body exercises, kind of building slowly until there's enough energy to work with, to get into the harder stuff, right?
1: Yeah, yeah that's exactly. I love that. Eat bitter. Eat bitter. Eat bitter. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Because, you know, you go into a sauna, mm-hmm. or you know, a cold body of water. Know, this morning, I went into to the ocean, and um, you know, it's getting a little chilly. We're in in mid November now, mm. um, and it's uncomfortable. Yeah, exercise is uncomfortable. Cold is uncomfortable. Heat is uncomfortable. Intermittent fasting is uncomfortable. Um, hypoxia, breath-holding, is uncomfortable. You know, these things mm. are not pleasant. They're a little bit bitter. Mm. So, uh, you know, but, and, and so it's kind of counterintuitive. But it because, makes you better. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. bitter makes you better. Yeah. And, and the path to being healthier involves temporarily being a bit uncomfortable. Yeah,
0: well, and if you look at the resilience of the species, that's what triggered, you know, the cavemen to, to really kind of toughen up. It was those long, hard winters. It was you know yeah. running from the predator. So yeah. those things evolutionarily helped us. Yeah. And so, okay, so cortisol is not the marker. Looking at all these other markers that get down-regulated, we look at this kind of, uh, comprehensive view of this whole thing going oh my god this animal is going to sleep and it's going into survival hunker down um, hibernation mode because it doesn't know what else to do um, because of whatever that overload is so it's about dealing with the overload it's about bringing up the resilience it's about looking at all these lifestyle factors and helping the mitochondria turn back on and start producing energy energy is the currency of life yeah without it you could feel the
1: difference right yep.
0: it sucks. And people who, everyone, everyone knows, everyone's been
1: sick. Yeah, absolutely. And and really, that's what it comes down to. Um, now, I'm, you know, on the one hand, I'm a very science based guy. And um, as hopefully people can gather from this interview, I, I really try to stick to the science. And that guides all of my thinking and, and my focus. At the same time, uh, this issue of chronic fatigue is. I mean, if you if you go search online, what's the cure for chronic fatigue syndrome, or or you know how do I fix burnout syndrome, or, or so on. Um, you, especially with chronic fatigue syndrome, you'll find you know things that say we we don't know what the causes are, or we haven't identified the cause, and we haven't figured out what the cure is. Um, <clears throat> so there's this this the, a little bit of a gap where. We have lots of evidence showing lots of different factors are at play in causing chronic fatigue. And yet, we don't have this clear body of evidence that we can say, oh, you know, they've already found, here's the one right way, the one thing to do to fix chronic fatigue. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to jump out ahead and I'm saying, you know, through looking at the science and through experimenting with thousands of people that I've worked with, what is the best Path to recovery, and I really believe that it's mostly about boosting mitochondrial health. And there's Mm. lots of different ways to do that. You know, when when I say mitochondrial health, I don't just mean taking some supplements to boost your mitochondria. I mean fix your circadian rhythm and sleep. I mean fix your nutrition. Do it all. Fix your gut. Fix your liver function and get the toxins out of your body. Yeah, manage your brain better Mm. and build your mitochondria Mm -hmm. through hormesis.
0: Is there a a biomarker, and I know this has been kind of a tough issue, is like, you know, what's your mitochondria score? You know what I mean? Like, is there some way to measure total output of mitochondria in a way that you know that the scoreboard, you know, you're winning on the scoreboard?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So with chronic fatigue syndrome, one of the challenges that's been around for, for decades now is we have this very debilitating condition. I mean, I quantify. yeah, but you go and take a standard blood test and it usually won't show any particular thing is really abnormal. Mm. Um, so this is really problematic for a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome because Um, They're debilitated, and yet they're they're going to see their doctor and saying, oh, we can't see that anything's wrong with you. I think you're you're just a hypochondriac, Mm. or here's some antidepressants, because you're obviously depressed, or here's some painkillers, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Here's a sleeping pill to help you sleep better. Um, So uh, there's been a huge issue with this being brushed off as hypochondria for a long time. And now, thanks to the metabolomic studies that I've mentioned before, we now know that there are very real biochemical abnormalities in these people. And there's also a test called the ATP Profile Test that's emerged in the UK. Um, That is basically exactly what you're asking about. It is a test to directly assess for mitochondrial function. Uh, basically what they can do is they look at three different kind of layers of how the mitochondria operate and they can assess which of those layers, if any, are dysfunctional. Uh, And it's done by, this was developed by a group of researchers led by uh, Sarah Myhill, who is uh, an MD who specializes in chronic fatigue syndrome in the UK. And um, what they did, kind of the landmark study was they did this ATP profile test on people with chronic fatigue syndrome and found these people do indeed have mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, very reliably and predictably compared to normal, healthy people. So that was kind of the first thing that, where they said, okay, now we actually do have an objective biomarker to know that these people do really have dysfunction and it's mm. not just hypochondria. Um, and that, that's a key thing because, you know, a lot of these people with chronic fatigue syndrome are on disability and trying to get benefits from the government are, and have been denied benefits mm-hmm. um, or have been looked at by their employers as just hypochondriacs. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of, on a personal level, there's a lot of really unfortunate things that happen mm-hmm. uh, because of the lack uh, that, because of the fact that we've lacked a clear biomarker for this condition, but but now that's changing. Thanks. It's one thing to feel like crap. It's another thing to have no one believe that you feel like crap until <laughs> exactly. you get over it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, give me a break. Awful. Yeah, it's <laughs> awful. Uh, is this a blood
1: test? Uh, I mean, you said in the UK, has it not crossed over yet? Um, I think it. Uh, I think it's only done by one lab right now because it's it was really recently developed. Um, And I think they're the only lab in the world that does it. I could be wrong about that. Let's research it and provide it as a resource if it's there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, This
0: to me is really fun because it is, you know, look, we we understand. Like, you know, in the Origins movie, we talked about all this crap that's in the environment that's suffocating us and all this. Like, we understand the problems. Yeah. Now we're trying to figure out how to bring the solutions forth. So we understand we shouldn't be, you know, uh, in bad air, we shouldn't be drinking polluted water, eating f- food additives, we get all that, mm-hmm. right? But I still feel like crap, I still don't have energy, now what, right? right? So bringing the solutions to bear will then give us the energy to get out ahead of this thing and, and, and really start to solve some of these problems.
1: Yeah, and, and the cool part is, you know, I'm glad you brought the movie up because the cool part of this is we can go geek out on all this science and all this co- the complexity of all these different factors and the science says this, this, and this, and this, but hopefully you can gather that a lot of my approach is really still rooted in this naturalistic approach that Mm -hmm. is about getting back to nature and is Mm -hmm. about harmonizing uh, the way that we're living with the kind of lifestyle and the kind of environments that our biology is designed to live in. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, all of a sudden, your mitochondria function better and your cells learn how to regenerate and you start to feel more energetic. Now. I've developed kind of a very systematic approach to doing that uh, in a way that maximizes the benefits and minimizes the potential for, for harm and doing things that are counterproductive. Uh, but it, it really is largely about getting back to nature.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's, the inputs are clean and you're moving your body, you're resilient, you're climbing trees, you're swimming in lakes and doing all those things that you know made us so good at you know surviving in this environment and then the last generation or two all of a sudden everyone's you know complaining about fatigue and not having energy and not being motivated and all that and so if you look at the energy output of our cells and how much they're being smothered and all these other things involved it's like it's it's just it's there it's right there in front of us yep. yeah yeah i mean
1: that that's the simple fact is that there's a mismatch between the environment and the kind of lifestyle that we're living today that most people in the modern western world are living and the kind of lifestyle and environment that our biology and our genes is programmed for. Mm -hmm. So there's no way to maximize health and energy levels without redirecting your lifestyle uh, choices and redesigning your your kind of micro-environment to mimic the kind of environment that, that our biology is designed for.
0: Ari, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. It's like every time I get to hang out with you, you've done so much more research and just really built on that body of knowledge. And you've helped a lot of people in my world. So
1: thank you. Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, great to have you here.